Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Welcome to our final fact sheet Friday. The first fact sheet on deck today is concussion in the pediatric population. We discussed this in episode 14, sports injuries. So go back there if you need further review. A concussion causes a decrease in blood flow to the brain and molecular changes that are not completely understood by scientists and medical professionals at this time. The pediatric brain is still developing, making a concussion very dangerous. Physical, cognitive, or emotional symptoms may be immediate or may present within a few days. Changes in sleep patterns may also occur. The fact sheet has a table regarding symptoms experienced by the child and symptoms reported by caregivers and teachers. Some common symptoms experienced are headaches, nausea, dizziness, and irritability. Some common symptoms reported from caregivers include moodiness, slowness, and forgetfulness. The fact sheet lists many more, so make sure to review that. Following a concussion, a child should be placed on brain rest. Make sure you know what brain rest is. It is defined as a decrease in cognitive stimulation. Things like decreased lighting, noise, and other sensory stimulation are recommended. It is recommended that physical activities be limited for 24 to 48 hours, and then a gradual return to exercise should be permitted. The child should remain out of any contact sports and avoid situations that may result in the chance of an additional concussion until they are fully symptom-free. The test of choice for a child 10 years and older is the IMPACT test. The IMPACT test is a neuropsychological test that can be taken on a computer and requires interpretation by a trained professional. Younger children may benefit from an assessment by a neuropsychologist to assist with determining appropriate limitations and behavior management. Balance and visual assessments can be completed by a physical or occupational therapist trained in vestibular therapy and concussion management. Headache management can be completed by a neurologist or a physician. Vestibular problems are a common area that PT can assist in following a concussion. Common symptoms include dizziness, headaches, visual tracking concerns, balance impairments, and post-concussion syndrome. PTs can work to resolve the balance and visual issues and reintegrate the child into physical activity. Make sure you are familiar with the gradual return to play protocol. 
This is outlined in table one in the fact sheet, and we discussed this in episode 14, but let's quickly review. The stages are no activity, light aerobic activity, sport-specific exercise, non-contact training drills, full contact practice, and return to gameplay. An important fact is that an athlete should only move to the next step if they do not have any new symptoms at the current step. If an athlete's symptoms come back or he or she gets new symptoms, this is a sign that the athlete is pushing too hard. The athlete should stop these activities and the medical provider should be contacted. After more rest and no concussion symptoms, the athlete can start at the previous step. Next, we're moving on to interventions for the non-synostoic cranial deformities in infants. The important characteristics of a newborn skull are that it is highly soft and pliable. Shapes in the newborn skull can vary due to inherent plasticity, intrauterine constraint, and the journey through the birth canal. The skull has eight sutures and six fontanelles to accommodate for needed growth as the brain is growing. The head shape should assume a normal shape within six weeks after birth, and if an abnormal head shape persists beyond this, they should be evaluated by a physician. Non-synostoic deformities include deformities where the sutures of the skull are open and have not prematurely fused. Therapists should differentiate non-synostoic cranial deformities from other causes of abnormal head shapes, including craniosynostosis and craniofacial syndromes. There are many contributing factors to skull deformities. There can be intrauterine packaging issues and extrauterine factors like a small maternal pelvis. There are also neonatal factors that happen at birth or early on, like pressure on the head by a tight birth canal or the need for an assisted delivery like forceps, vacuum, or suction. Also, hypotonic infants presenting with weak neck muscles are at a greater risk. Environmental factors might include something like a preference to turn the head to one side while sleeping due to the surface position of the crib. Sleeping and playing in the supine position with little or no time spent in prone, excessive time spent in infant carriers, car seats, and strollers, or prolonged placement in one position in the neonatal intensive care unit. All of these things should be covered in an evaluation of a child with cranial deformities. Let's talk about the different types of skull deformation. Craniosynostosis is your main differential diagnosis. You can't miss this. Craniosynostosis is a premature closure of one or more sutures of the skull. The clinical presentation of the skull is dependent on which of the sutures is involved. Suspicion of craniosynostosis requires referral back to the pediatrician for evaluation by a pediatric neurosurgeon or craniofacial physician. Most infants require surgical intervention to open prematurely closed sutures. The one time I caught this was in a patient I had that had plagiocephaly, but they were a right-sided plagiocephaly, so they were flat on the right side and the left ear was notably shifted forward, and the left frontal area was bossing. And so that's kind of the key differential, is if the ear shift or the frontal bossing doesn't match the flattening on the back of the head, that's just a really good way to quickly do a differential and send them back. And the child did, in fact, have cranial synostosis. 
Moving on to the non-synestoic types you have, plagiocephaly, brachycephaly, asymmetric brachycephaly, and scaphocephaly. We talked a little bit about this in episode 11 relating back to torticollis, but let's review because I think it's important. Plagiocephaly is a unilateral occipital flattening, anterior progression of the ear on the same side as the flattened occiput, and varying degrees of ipsilateral frontal and contralateral posterior parietal bossing. In order to objectively assess this, you need to look at the cranial vault asymmetry, which is assessed by measuring the longest and shortest diagonals of the skull and subtracting the difference in millimeters. Brachycephaly presents as a skull that is disproportionately wide compared to its length. You may also see a prominent or bossed forehead. Increased height of the cranial vault and central occipital flattening are also seen. Severity is determined by the number of deviations above the mean for the cephalic index. Increased vertex height and frontal involvement of the forehead and facial structures. You can also have asymmetric brachycephaly, which is a combination deformity characterized by disproportion and asymmetry. Scaphocephaly presents as a disproportionately long skull for its width. This is common in preterm infants. Of note, sagittal craniosynostosis can also present with the scaphocephalic head shape. In the absence of a NICU history or excessive side positioning, craniostosis should be ruled out by a craniofacial specialist. Severity is determined by the number of deviations below the mean for the cephalic index. Remember, the cephalic index is the width divided by the length times 100. First choice interventions for infants zero to four months of age without torticollis developmental concerns, or obvious skull deformities include parent education, repositioning, and exercises. Second choice interventions involve the use of a cranial remolding treatment to encourage symmetrical and proportional skull growth. To be effective, we need to initiate treatment within the first year of life when the skull is rapidly growing. Third choice interventions involve surgery for non-synestoic cranial deformities. This is very rare in infants with head shape deformities without synostosis. I think this is a great fact sheet to supplement the Campbell Torticollis chapter, the CPG, and our episode 11. The next fact sheet is about Medicaid. It's an older fact sheet, but still has some good information. It begins by explaining what Medicaid is. State Medicaid programs are funded partially by the federal government and partially by the state government. A state may have one or more quote unquote medical waiver programs, which fund services for people with complex health conditions. Eligibility requirements are determined by each state and are primarily income based unless you have one of those waiver programs. In New York, almost all of the kids that I treat in school are covered by Medicaid. We have all heard about the uproar with CMS and reimbursement recently, but that's not something necessarily that you will be tested on. Services that are covered by Medicaid vary between each state. To become a Medicaid provider, you must have a national provider identification number or an MPI number. 
The fact sheet then goes on to describe billing information. While some of this material may not necessarily be testable, it is definitely worth it to go through for general information. The next fact sheet was also one that is older and needed to be searched on Google. It provides a list of resources for pediatric physical therapy services and durable medical equipment, or DME. It provides websites for the different organizations that can help provide funding or reimbursement for DME. The organizations include the APTA, APTA State Chapters, Academy of Pediatric Physical Therapy of the APTA, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the IDEA, state education agencies and directors of special education, and other philanthropic and professional organizations. Next, for our next season, we will sift through fact sheets that may have been added later on in your studying that we didn't get to or didn't realize were added. We recommend that on your own time, as part of your last little bit of studying, take a peek at the fact sheets and see if there were any that we missed. Go over the ones that may have been skipped over to make sure your studying is all encompassing. You're at the end here, you're almost there. Don't stress yourself out on trying to get everything studied. These fact sheets have a lot of information packed into them all in one spot. If you have questions on something, see if there's a fact sheet on it. They were created for a reason, to be a resource for you. Definitely. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.